You're listening to Canada's Court, your home for all your Canadian basketball needs. Here's your host, Philip Drost. Well, the NBA landscape has undergone some dramatic changes this offseason. Many of the best players in the Eastern Conference went west, and the two top teams, Cleveland and Boston, swapped some players. And that has Canadian fans asking, where do the Raptors stand? Well, to help me answer that and many other questions, I've got the brilliant Eric Smith on the line. Eric Smith does the radio play-by-play for the Toronto Raptors, and he was with the team in Victoria for their training camp. Eric, thanks for joining me. No problem, Philip. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. So you got to go to Victoria, but not Hawaii. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? I, it was my first time in Victoria, and it was, it was gorgeous there, and I, I, I loved it. But there's no denying that uh, I, I guess I got the short end of the stick not going to Hawaii. But uh, I ended up going to Edmonton instead of Hawaii, visiting some friends at Edmonton. So I was, that, that's an even worse trade-off, probably, considering <laughs> when, I, when I left Edmonton on uh, Monday to fly back to Toronto, it was snowing in Edmonton. So that's... Uh, that was a bit of a rude awakening. Ooh, that that does sting. Well, at the training camp, uh, what what did you? What were your first impressions of the team as you watched them? I think the biggest thing, honestly, is simply just the continuity and the familiarity from especially the core guys. But even when you move beyond the core, uh, there's so much focus on the the potential of the second unit and the, and that sort of youthful second unit. And uh, you, you hope that that potential steps up just based on the fact that they're going to have to. Because uh, there's not much else there, um, factoring in the loss of you know Corey Joseph, Patrick Patterson, uh, uh, obviously Demari Carroll, and PJ Tucker last season's late addition. So you know four guys that were a part of your top eight in the rotation last year are suddenly gone. But the top four in Valanciunas, Abaca, and of course DeRozan and Lowry, that's still something that you know I, I think uh, a lot of teams kind of gun for is familiarity, chemistry, continuity. And then looking, as I say, beyond that to the young guys, as much as there's pressure on those youngsters to have to now step up in the absence of a lot of those veterans that have now moved on to other teams, those young players have played at least one, if not a couple of seasons together with either Raptors 905 or even spot minutes in the NBA when you think about DeLon Wright and Norm Powell, let alone then throw in a Jakob Pertl and a Pascal Siakam and even go deeper with Lucas Nogueira and, dare I even say, Bruno Caboclo. So guys that have played together and had that chemistry, you hope then it can translate uh, into the NBA level as this you know organization looks to take that next step towards winning, but still trying to improve and cultivate young talent at the same time. What kind of things were the uh, coaching staff focusing on during the camp? I think the biggest thing is probably just trying to, to focus on, on the, uh, listen, it's not a revamp. Actually, no, let me rephrase that. It's not an, uh, a, a re. Um, well, how, how do I say this? They're not completely overhauling the offense to the point that some people think, but I think they are revamping it. And that's probably the best word to use when you think about the tweaks that are being made. It's not like suddenly the, the Toronto Raptors are going to become the Golden State Warriors. It's, it's one thing to, to say you want to shoot more threes, but you're going to have to become uh, better and obviously more efficient in that aspect of the game. But I think the, the revamping, I, I, I believe, uh, the root of it is ball movement and making sure that you're playing unselfish basketball. Because as much as we talk about the three-point shot for the Raptors and, and many teams in the league, I think the, the, the first and main, main priority to all of that is moving the ball. You know, that extra pass, the swing-swing, getting it into the corner, getting it out onto the wings, making that, that, that one or even two extra passes to find not just a good look but a great look, to find the best open look. And, and Dwayne Casey said a couple of times, Philip, over the course of the week that, 
Um, you know, some guys may see a dip in their stats, but the team win total and efficiency of the team overall may increase as a result. And on one day, I know specifically, uh, he singled out DeMar DeRozan saying that he has told DeRozan, listen, you may see your points per game go down a couple of points, but your assist totals or assist averages go up a couple. And that will, in turn, he believes, be better for the team overall. And that wasn't a single of DeMar DeRozan saying that he's not moving the ball. I mean, he's coming off a season where he averaged around five assists per game. He, he's become better and better as the years have gone on. But I think if DeRozan, if Lowry, even Valanchunas as a big man, throw it into the post, kick it out, repost, find open shooters, et cetera, I think if everybody's moving the ball, that makes the offense flow that much better. Uh, and I think then, then hopefully that translates to a, a more efficient and effective team, a more dangerous team on a lot of nights. Was there anybody in training camp who really surprised you with maybe something they changed or, or improved? Um, I don't know if it's fair to say a surprise with Norm Powell because I think we kind of know what he is. Um, but I, I, I think so many of us, I, I'm, I'm going to assume you included, are waiting for him to take that, that next step this year, again referencing the, the veteran players that are now not with this team, which has opened up the door for so many youngsters, and it seems like Powell will be at the front of that list, at the top of that list. And, and you know, I think his maturity on the floor, his strength, his speed, uh, his ability to play on, on either end, you know, to be a pretty solid, decent defender, but to have the explosiveness on offense, the confidence at which he plays, I think that, again, I, I don't want to say that it surprised me because I think we kind of all felt that Powell could be that type of player. But then to know going into the season that those expectations are on you and then to be able to step up in training camp and already from day one start showing that, let alone in, you know, in the intra-squad game for what that's worth. And just even the way that I can tell you the way he, he, he kind of conducts himself and handles himself with the media. There were more reporters talking to him. There were more people looking to get a quote from him. And he seems to have you know, embrace that role or that opportunity to kind of take that next step and, and knows, um, you know, the the pressures or should I maybe even say the responsibilities uh, that come with that. And, and he seems to be kind of, as I say, uh, welcoming that with open arms and handling quite well so far. Now that brings me to my uh, next question, which has been a bit of a debate among, among Raptors fans. Uh, who do you think is going to start, Norman Powell or C.J. Miles? I think it. I think it will be C.J. Miles, and I think it should be C.J. Miles because I'm kind of old school when I when I think about my my views on starting, and I'm I'm one of those guys that believes the start is pretty much just your name being introduced. You know, you and I could start, and you know, or you you know, you could start ahead of me. But if I end up playing 32 minutes a night, or and you end up playing 22 minutes a night, uh, what does it matter that you ultimately started? I really do believe, as cliche as it might sound, it comes down to who finishes the game and who's performing the best. I think Miles in the starting lineup helps space the floor a little bit better from the get-go, uh, you know, kind of as a complement to the scoring uh, that you get from DeRozan and Lowry. Uh, and I think that Powell might sort of get lost a little bit offensively if he was on the floor from the get-go with those guys. Whereas if you bring him in as a part of the second unit and capitalize on his explosiveness and the game-changing ability that he might have because of that explosiveness, I think that's kind of a, a, a nice change of pace uh, again coming in. And, and listen, he could come in at the at the four, six, eight minute mark in the first quarter and end up playing, you know, most of the second quarter. Uh, I think it's really a luxury right now for Dwayne Casey to have two different guys uh, essentially that could play that position because you know CJ Miles is a completely different player 
Um, but I think, you know, you, you don't necessarily have to bring Powell in for miles. Powell could come in, you know, for, uh, for DeRozan to spell some time and keep Powell on the floor with CJ miles. I think there's a lot of combinations you're going to see this year, uh, from Dwayne Casey, uh, especially when the team kind of opts to, to maybe move a little towards the small ball or smaller lineup, because, you know, I don't know if I'm stealing one of your questions, but I think even, you know, so many of us, myself included, feel that the the reins of the backup role have been handed to DeLon Wright, and I fully, fully believe that, but I also don't think that Fred Van Vliet is out of the picture. I think there's opportunities where, you know, DeLon Wright could come onto the floor in a two-guard set alongside Lowry with maybe even DeRozan sliding down to the three, or even then, you know, spelling off Lowry at times, but wanting to still run two guards and having Van Vliet out there with DeLon Wright. So, I think Dwayne Casey's got a lot of different combinations that he can use, and it certainly starts, I think, with uh, with that Powell-Miles uh, matchup or, or combination that we spoke about the top. So while we're talking about that, I was going to ask what you thought the uh, starting lineup would be, but perhaps a more important question would be, who do you think uh, will generally close out the games for the Toronto Raptors this season? You know, I think certainly it's going to be matchup-driven more than anything else, but I would guess on a lot of nights, um, you know, clearly DeRozan, Lowry, uh, Abaka are your three. Uh, after that, um, I think Powell probably is out there on the floor. Um, and then that's, you know, fairly small. So can Valanchunas take that next step? Uh, again, he was getting some, some pretty decent reviews and, and comments from uh, Coach Casey and members of his coaching staff at camp. Uh, they feel that he's, you know, come in in even better shape. He seems a little bit more invigorated, uh, you know, this year. Uh, they were happy with his his uh, his fluidity, for lack of a better term, on the floor, his movement overall. Um, but the, how does that translate come the season in in terms of, uh, you know, who you're facing in various matchups? Because that's going to be the problem, I think, is when you look beyond, uh, you know, Val and Chunis, it's not that the cupboard is bare, but the cupboard is inexperienced. And who's ready to grab that role? So, so I guess maybe the best way to answer your question is to be honest in, in saying, I don't know yet. I don't know if you know. I don't know if I know. I think the one guy in that, that's sticking out in my brain that I think has a legit shot at being a consistent defender and a guy that you don't have to worry about finding shots for, and he seems to be real smart on the floor, has a good nose for the ball around the rim, and he knows how to hold his position, and that's Jakob Pertl. Uh, and whether he's prepared at this point in year two, to step up and take that role to be one of those guys on the floor closing out games remains to be seen. Could it be Pascal Siakam who almost started half the season last year at the beginning of the year? Or could it be the, the guy who's been a bit of an enigma at times in his time, in, not only in Toronto, but in the in the league period going back to the, the Atlanta days? It's Lucas Naguera. Because there's a guy that shows you tons of spurts, but he never seems to be able to put it together for more than a few games. He kind of teases and tantalizes you with some, some amazing games and, and sort of breakout performances and then follows that up with a dud or two and seems to fall out of the rotation again. So can he find that consistency? So I, I think at this point we don't know uh, who that closer is, um, but I think that Powell could certainly kind of slide into that, you know, Patrick Patterson-esque role where, you know, Patterson wasn't the starter, but more often than not was on the floor with the starters and closing out a lot of games. Now, what about the guys who um, aren't for sure going to be on the, the roster, the non-guaranteed guys? Which of those um, people out there, there's a few names, who do you think might be vying for the final roster spots? You know, 
I, I'm 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 weighing this quite a bit, kind of going back and forth on what the Raptors could or should do because there's there's a theory that you know you have two open roster spots, but do you even fill both of those? Because if you decided to go perhaps with a 14 man uh, roster instead of the full 15, it could give you the flexibility to add somebody along the way if you wanted to. That said, under the NBA's collective bargaining rules, you know a lot of uh, guaranteed contracts don't officially kick in for the full season until I believe the first or second week of January. I want to say January 10th or 12th off the top of my head. I'm forgetting, Philip, but I, it's right around there. So in theory, you could still take the full 15, ride it out until that date in January, and then say, okay, we'll cut this guy now to add that guy over there. So you could still go through and try and cultivate and groom a player for the next you know, three months or so before ultimately saying, no, you know what, we don't want to lock in and guarantee you. You're gone. We're going to go after somebody else. So all that said, if I had to pick two, Raptors have 13 guaranteed. There's two open roster spots. Based on just me, if I was putting this team together, this isn't coming from any coaches because when when the you know I haven't talked to the team or anybody involved in the team at any great length other than the odd email in the last couple of days, you know since last week when I was in Victoria, uh, the team as you said has been in Hawaii, so I haven't had conversations with you know Dwayne Casey or any of his staff at any great length since then, and they weren't tipping their hand in Victoria. My gut says if I was picking the team, the two guys I'd be looking at would be K.J. McDaniels and Andy Routens. And the reason I say that is I think, uh, I think Lorenzo Brown is, is you know, immensely talented and has a, has a lot of skills. Um, I, I think the Raptors, though, when I look at their depth in the backcourt, especially at the guard position, I think you've got enough and enough versatility and difference in styles in Lowry, DeLon Wright, and Fred Van Vliet, who we spoke about earlier. Um, I, I think when you think about the bigs, there's already questions about, um, you know, where are the minutes going to go, who ultimately grabs the full minutes between Abaka, Valanciunas, and then the next wave of Pirtle, Siakam, Nagara. So I think, you know, when you think about some of the bigs that the, the Raptors have, um, I think that maybe nullifies uh, some of the other bigs that may be competing for those final two spots which then brings me to the wing and DeMar DeRozan, CJ miles and what Norm Powell is your only other guy really, because at this point I think Bruno Caboclo is still uh, a bit of a question mark. And at least until he's fully healthy and ready for, you know, legit action, uh, you've got to question OG Anunobi. and And I only say question because of health, not question the skill set, but also NBA rookie. Is he going to step in right away and play 15, 20, 22 minutes a night for Dwayne Casey? So I would like to have a little bit more depth at that wing position. And I think that Kyle Wiltshire has proven to be a fantastic shooter. I'm just not sure about his overall game in terms of defense and rebounding and doing other things. I think you could get the shooting and more of those, quote, other things from a guy like Andy Routens based on even just his experience playing overseas, his experience with the national team, I think his intelligence of the game, I think he's a guy that could help if given a role, uh, certainly, um, you know, even if it's spent some time down at the 905 and then be able to bring him up from time to time if need be. I think he could fill a role for this team more so than Wiltshire. And I'm not just taking him because he's Canadian. And I'm not just picking his name because I'm you know, friends with Leo Routens. I think like Andy has a legit opportunity. He was, he was a guy that, you know, what, two, three years ago, many believe should have stayed with Oklahoma City when he was at the Thunder Camp and one of, was one of their last cuts before he ultimately you know, played the last couple of years overseas. And I think the, the K.J. McDaniels one is a guy who's a decent defender but purely athletic. And I think there are still very 
very many raw components to his game on both ends of the floor, which can you know lead to to mistakes or to uh, to to you know a, a definite need of honing the skills. But that raw physicality and that raw athleticism overall, I'll take that and try and groom that. And I, you know, I remember when he first came into the league as a rookie, and you know the Raptors playing the 76ers. And he had a big game against Toronto. And I remember both Jonesy and I, Paul Jones and I, looking at each other in one of the timeouts in a commercial break or something, thinking, man, this kid, this kid can jump out of the gym. He's got a lot of talent. And he, unfortunately, he's kind of bounced around since there. And maybe that talent hasn't been able to you know, be fully exposed or harnessed yet. And I think if the Raptors are, are smart, they maybe look at him as a guy that they could certainly groom. So we talked uh, briefly, you mentioned briefly Bruno Caboclo. Do you think he might get uh, any significant playing time this year? I think he's got the opportunity to, to, you know, to finally show that he can, you know, play and, and perform at this level. But I think the tough thing is going to be is will the will the minutes be there? You know, I, I, I I'll tell you, there was a conversation I had last year. And I don't think you mind me sharing this that I had with uh, with Michael Grange, you know, working with him from Sportsnet, and he and I again, I can't even remember if this is early last year, late last year, when it was. But I, I kind of said to him, like, honestly. Bruno's a great guy for what that's worth. Great kid, you know, personable and easy to talk to and happy go lucky, et cetera, et cetera. But okay, all due respect, you know, you, me, Bruno, whatever, we don't get, you know, you know, we don't get work for being nice guys. It's can you perform at your job and do you do your job well? And I kind of said like, when is this guy going to be ready? Like, is he ready? Will he be ready? What's going to happen? And I'll be the first to admit to you, Phil, I don't see a lot of the 905 games because of the fact that, when I'm in Toronto, I'm at the Raptor games, and when, and then I'm on the road. And the odd time that I'm actually home and have an off night, I still have to see my family. <laughs> so I'm not going to the gym another night to watch a 905 game. I got to put in time with my, uh, you know, with with my family. So I don't. I've, I've been to two 905 games in in a couple of seasons. So I haven't seen Bruno up close and personal in 905 action more than a couple of times. I see him more around the uh, Raptors at practice or, or at shoot arounds and the odd time that he gets in a game when he's up with the big club. So my knowledge of his development or the, the process of, of his development isn't as good as some that follow the nine or five more closely. A guy like Blake Murphy comes to mind who I know watches a ton of the nine or five stuff, but you think of what he did last year over the course of the regular season. And then certainly flourishing in the playoffs. I'm talking about in the G league and the D league last year. Um, and then think about that that one last game where he was 30-plus points. Then the offseason that he had, and I know there were hiccups and, and bumps in the road with the national team, but then coming into training camp, Dwayne Casey mentioned his name a number of times at, at camp in Victoria last week, specifically talking about uh, his development of the three-point shot and then seeing him for what it's worth for you know a few minutes in the intra-squad game, getting down in a stance defensively, locked down to Rosen a couple of times, his body looks a little bit more developed. He looks stronger. He looks like he just fits and feels more comfortable on the floor, more so than ever before. All that said, go back to the question you asked me, I don't know, four or five questions ago about the starting lineup slash rotation. Who's Bruno going to take minutes from? You know, obviously not Larry DeRozan, Abaka, Valanciunas, Miles. I don't think he's getting ahead of Norm Powell. You're not getting ahead of DeLon Wright just from positioning, let alone anything else. So at the very least, you'd say, does he have a chance to crack the top eight? Well, is he more of a three or a four? Yeah, he's tall enough to play the four, but I think he's more of a three. So he's behind DeRozan, Miles, and Powell for sure. 
Then we factor in, as I mentioned, running two guard sets. Powell slides to the three with you know uh, Van Vliet and Lowry in the backcourt. DeRozan slides to the three with Lowry and DeLon Wright, or you know any combination. I think when you start thinking about the rotation and combination, Powell, Pirtle, uh Wright, probably Siakam. Those would be my four guys. I mentioned Anunobi as a rookie, his development. That's now going five deep. That's now a 10-man rotation. Is Caboclo jumping up and taking any one of those players' minutes? I don't think so. Maybe, but I don't think so. So as much as I feel like he's got the opportunity and he's probably stronger and better than he's ever been, is he still yet good enough to be in Dwayne Casey's eight-man rotation? I don't think so. Nine-man rotation? Eh, Probably not. Ten-man rotation? Eh, Maybe. How many times are you going 11-12 deep? You know what I'm saying? Not too often. (laughs) I I think it's there in terms of the chance, but not a good chance, simply because Dwayne Casey, let alone most coaches, like to keep that rotation a little tighter. So I I think if people are sitting back expecting Bruno to jump on the scene, he's going to have to be extremely special and be extremely good if suddenly he's going to be in Dwayne Casey's top eight. That, I mean, that would be a, a pretty substantial leap, to say the least, if he's that good. And, hey, if he is, that's a positive problem to have. That's, that's fantastic if he is. I just don't know if I'm, I'm, I'm ready to, to, to go on record saying that as of yet. And the concern for him is he's kind of running out of time to really uh, prove himself. Well, you know, and the tough thing with that, too, is it's, all, it's almost like the, the unknown. You know, as much as we joke about the the four years away from being four years away, that's, you know, kind of the product and the problem of going after a young player. But the positive of that problem is young player develops. Young player eventually becomes good and now is ready in year three or four to take that jump. But what is also coming then at the end of year four? Well, time for a new contract. So if you're the Raptors projecting ahead, you've now put in all this time, all this blood, sweat, and tears developing a player and are you truly confident, say, by the end of the season, saying, you know what, nope, we're done, we're out. We, did, we gave four years, we took a chance, we thought it was worth the, the, the chance, uh, and, and you know what, ultimately it didn't work, so fine, see you later. And then he ends up becoming something with another team? Or do you say, no, you know what, we've invested this time, we've invested this money, we've invested this blood, sweat, and tears, we'll give the extension because we don't want to see him go somewhere else and finally become a player. And let's be honest, do we expect him to end up being – an NBA All-Star one day? No. But is he a guy that could end up being a serviceable player in the rotation? A guy with a, you know, a massive wingspan and a ton of athleticism, et cetera, and, and suddenly he becomes a, a decent enough player that he's giving you 15, 18, 20-plus minutes a night? Yeah, maybe. I mean, we don't know yet. But, but I know I'd be gun-shy if I were the Raptors about allowing him to, to sort of walk and go to another team, and then how much it would sting to see him go to another squad and, and flourish. But the, the tough thing is going to be, but if he doesn't flourish, if he doesn't step up, we just locked him in for even more years. That's kind of where Toronto's at right now. Uh, and and it's uh, I'm not sure what the easy answer is, to be honest with you. I imagine uh, this decision could be made easier or harder, it depends which, on how OG Ananobi does uh, this season. And what, what, what have you heard about his health? Well, he told me when on media day, uh, I guess that was a couple of weeks ago now or, or coming up to a couple of weeks ago, he told me that day that he had been playing five-on-five five full contact for the better part of two, three weeks. And I, that kind of bugged my eyes out. You know, that media day was, uh, what, the 25th, 26th of September, whatever that Monday was uh, a couple of weeks ago. 
And I didn't realize that he was already playing five on five full contact. Now that was in, you know, organized controlled scrimmages against his teammates. Um, but other than I believe Larry DeRozan, Abaka and Valanciunas, every other Raptor was in Toronto for those two, three weeks. Like the team has been together for at least a few weeks before training camp. And he was playing those five on fives against, you know, Bebe and Bruno and, and Powell and Wright and Van Vliet, et cetera. The list goes on. So when I heard that, I, I, I immediately said, are you ahead of schedule then? He's like, I, you know, he's very soft-spoken and very, you know, quiet to the point. I mean, you'd be lucky to get more than three words out of him in an answer. And when I asked him about, you know, ahead of schedule, he said, yeah, maybe a bit. And, okay, well, that's got to be considered a positive sign. You know, are you, are you ahead of schedule in terms of when you're back on the floor? Yeah, we'll see. I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, very, very kind of guarded with what he was saying. Then he ends up playing the five-on-five inter-squad game. Uh, but then was held out of the preseason action. So I think, I think the Raptors are prepared to put him out there amongst teammates, as I said, in a controlled setting, but not yet ready to, to kind of loosen the reins and let him go for real. Um, once he's finally ready, everything I'm hearing is the, the athleticism, the you know, quick burst, the defense, just the versatility of his game overall and his knowledge of the game overall. Uh, you know, I, I I can't imagine that Masai Ujiri would too often say to me, yeah, it was a terrible pick. I shouldn't have taken that guy. Or, oh, you know what? I'm really regretting taking player Y. I don't think he's <laughs> going to say that very often. So take this with a grain of salt. But, but Masai Ujiri did say to me kind of just in a, not really off the record, but off camera comment when we were just chatting one day, he, he looked at me and said, this kid's got a chance to be real good. So I know the Raptors are excited about him. And we're quite excited to get him. And the fact that other teams, I think, shied away because of the injury and the Raptors being prepared to wait that out. Uh, and now, if he's ahead of schedule, or even if he just stays on the same schedule, or he's not back till November, December, um, again, it seems like a lot of people are quite excited about what he could bring. Uh, and I think the fact that, as we talked about a little bit earlier in our conversation, that the Raptors are, you know, trying to win now and still develop. There's enough. I guess enough depth ahead of him that they can still wait and be patient and continue to develop. Uh, and if it's something where he doesn't, you know, blow the socks off the world in, in season number one, he's still got an opportunity uh, to be a part of what the Raptors are doing going forward. Cause you know, we'll, we'll probably know by, by, you know, midway through next year and certainly by the end of next year, what direction this team is going, you, you know, your main three guys have three years on their contracts respectively. So you're going to know by the end of next season if you're continuing to move forward with that core that's going to be that much older or if it's time for the next wave and is that next wave ready or how much tweaking will need to be done uh, to, to get us into three years from now, let alone five years from now when we're talking again. And and maybe we're not talking about Larry DeRozan Abaka anymore, but we're talking about Powell Wright and Anunobi. Who knows? Who knows? And and anybody else that might be coming, you know, kind of through the pipeline, uh, you know, from now until then. So yeah, I think the Raptors have that luxury of being able to be a little bit patient with the development of some of these young guys that we still speak of. That brings me to uh, my final question here, and it's it's the big one. I know for myself as a Raptors fan, my expectations are always too high. I'm always like, you know what, they're going to win it all this year. This is the year. But realistically, I know that's going to be incredibly difficult. Where do you think Raptors fans should be putting their kind of uh, hopes? What what would be a reasonable outlook for the Raptors this season? I'll I'll tell you, I'll I'll go back to two seasons ago, and I I probably said the same thing last year, and, and I'll still stay by what I said last year. I think the Raptors had every opportunity last season to 
do exactly what they did the previous year. To be the second-best team in the conference and to make it to the conference finals, they're not better than Cleveland. And I'll say the exact same thing this year. Because if you remember last year, Philip, the Raptors, they had every opportunity to even finish ahead of the Boston Celtics for that number one seat. What was the difference? A couple of wins? You know, I, I think the Raptors were right there. And, and I still think even going into this season, I'll say the same thing that I said last season. Four best teams in no particular order, Cleveland, Boston, um, Washington, and, you know, take your pick from there. Who's the fourth best team in the Eastern Conference then? You know, I think you could have conversations, you know, when you think Cleveland, Boston, Toronto, Washington, those are your, those are your four teams right there in any specific order. Now, I don't believe that Toronto or Washington will jump up and be the number one seed this year. I think Milwaukee's going to be better. I'm not going all in as much as some people are with the Charlotte Hornets, but I think the top half of the East has kind of stayed the same, especially if we want to throw Milwaukee into the mix and say those five teams, in my eyes, are the five best teams. But I look at the Celtics, and you know, I know you mentioned Boston right off the top in your intro. They're going to be very good. But I'm not sure that they should be anointed the way so many people have. And I certainly don't believe uh, that they're neck and neck with the, with the Cleveland Cavaliers. When you think that they're what, you know, what they sort of hung their hat on over the last couple of seasons was their, their depth overall and specifically their defense, their, their toughness on any given night. And, yeah, they had one hell of a fourth-quarter finisher in Isaiah Thomas. They don't have him now. Now, Kyrie Irving's still a hell of a player. Gordon Hayward's a very good player. But you also don't have that defense I speak of in Avery Bradley's gone. Jay Crowder's gone. Even, you know, glue guy pieces like an Amir Johnson, gone. Uh, a, a definite role player and an important piece to what they've done over the last uh, couple of seasons, Kelly Olynyk, gone. We're talking about only, I believe, four players returning from last year's team. And when we think about big three, quote-unquote, I said this to somebody else in an interview I did earlier in the week. You tell me if you, if you agree with me or not. Go man for man, big three for big three, if we want to use that term, Toronto versus Boston. Kyrie Irving, Kyle Lowry. Most people, I think, would take Kyrie Irving simply because of youth. But if we're talking about production on the floor, you can't really turn your nose up at, at a multi-time all-star in Lowry and what he's done over the last couple of seasons with Toronto. But even if you want to say, fine, give the edge to Kyrie, buy a hair. DeMar DeRozan, Gordon Hayward. Personally, I take DeRozan. That's not the slight Gordon Hayward. I think he can do a lot of things that DeRozan can't, but I think DeRozan can do a lot of things that Hayward can't either. At the very least, we could have an argument, again, at that position and call it a wash if you want. But I'm giving the edge to DeRozan. Abaka versus Al Horford. To me, at the very least, a wash. Again, we could make an argument for which one you'd rather have, which one's quote-unquote better. My point being, when you go man for man, you know, top player for top player, excuse me, for top player, I don't know that there's that much of a difference, yet for some reason Boston is still stealing all these headlines. When you look to the depth long term in a couple of seasons, no doubt having Brown and Tatum and not giving up either one of those players in a trade is huge, huge for the Celtics. And if we're having this conversation in a couple of years, I think those two players swing the favor in the Celtics, no doubt. But Right now, they're still relatively young and inexperienced, and I think that's much like the Raptors' young core that's relatively young and inexperienced. And you start thinking about, okay, what about 
if we even start comparing Morris versus Miles or Smart versus Powell, and then look at you know front court guys and think about you know the the the, the length of front or lack thereof for the Celtics versus the inexperience of a Pirtle or a Siakam. I don't think Boston and Toronto on paper are that far off, and I think too many of the quote unquote experts have just gotten caught up in ooh the Celtics went out and got Gordon Hayward and 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 Kyrie Irving. Well, yeah, okay. They're going to be good. They're going to be very good. They're going to be a top, you know, two, three, four team in the East. But I don't know that they're suddenly just right there neck and neck with the Cavaliers in terms of it's Boston and Cleveland and then everybody else. And I certainly don't buy into, you know, some of those, you know, prognostications that have had the Raptors finishing down at like fifth or sixth in the East. I just, I don't see that myself. Uh, if I'm wrong, I'll gladly admit I'm wrong, but I just don't see it. So, uh, to, you know, very, very, very long-winded answer for you. I don't see any reason why you or any other Raptor fan can't think that a conference finals appearance is an absolute you know, possibility because uh, I don't think that there's a, a whole heck of a lot of difference between, as I say again, uh, Boston, Toronto, Washington, Milwaukee. I think they've all got a chance to be there, but I don't think any of those teams are better than LeBron James, Kevin Love, Tristan Thompson, Isaiah Thomas, Jay Crowder, you know, the J.R. Smith, Amon Shumpert, yada, 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 the list goes on. That, that team is unbelievably stacked. Wait, you're telling me that the experts are overlooking Toronto for Boston? <laughs> no, I don't believe it. Um, no, and then the flip side <laughs> of that is people then just think that people in Toronto are, you know, just rose-colored glasses <laughs> and da 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 but, And listen, I don't think there's a – I've never believed that there's a big conspiracy theory regarding the Raptors, <laughs> but I do find it strange that a team that was right there, right there last year, again, the, the top of the East, if you remember, was decided by just a few games difference between Boston, Toronto, and Cleveland. They yeah. were all right there. And yes, Toronto bowed out in the second round to the, to the Cavaliers in a sweep, you know, but had they not faced Cleveland in the second round, maybe they win the second round, they're back in the conference finals. Does it matter because you ultimately lose anyways in the conference finals? Yeah, I guess. But then from that standpoint, does it matter then if you lose in the second round, if you're only going to lose in the conference finals anyway? You know what I mean? Yeah. It just, I, I, I don't see that Toronto uh, has gotten drastically worse this year uh, with the people they've lost. And I don't mean any disrespect to that, but I think if we're being honest, and I think even if these players are being honest, the one player that I think could make a difference in terms of having an impact uh, with his departure believe it or not, I think, is Corey Joseph more than anybody else. And I think Patrick Patterson um, would even have to acknowledge himself. He had an extremely inconsistent season last year, at, at least on the offensive end. He was still a pretty decent defender. He was still a pretty solid rebounder, but he could not consistently make a shot. And when he was there to make shots, he wasn't doing it. Now you factor in the health and the, the wonky knee that he's been trying to deal with, and I think that you can say there's a definite case to be made for the Raptors uh, have an opportunity to at least be as good or better at his position or within his role by moving forward with somebody younger. I think the same thing could be said for Damari Carroll. Health, lack of production, lack of shooting, lack of defense, a guy who I think was absolutely worth trying to take a chance on. I think a guy who was healthy would have had an opportunity to be good with Toronto but he just could never stay healthy and thus could never perform. Hence, I think Toronto has a chance to be as good, if not better, by going with somebody a little bit younger in that spot. The one guy, though, in Corey Joseph, 
it puts a ton of pressure and, and spotlight on DeLon Wright. I think Wright's got all the skills and all the opportunity, but if he isn't able to be as good as Joseph was, then that's where Toronto might, and I underscore might struggle, because you're taking a guy off your team who could make shots, who could certainly you know, uh, run an offense, who's got championship experience, who's got a lot of playoff experience, and you don't have that in Lowry's primary backup. So when I look at that and, and break it down the way I just did and think that your core is still back with Lowry DeRose and Ibaka Valanciunas, I'm not sure how some of these experts look and think that Toronto is that much worse considering what they lost versus what they gained and or still have. And that means that they're now dropping way down into the bottom <laughs> third of the Eastern Conference playoff standings. I, I, I personally just don't understand that mentality or that thought process. And the other thing is uh, the Celtics only have four returning players, which yeah. is yeah. – and 100%. they're still talented players, but that yeah. takes time to uh, and to adjust. And they two best defenders. I mean, Marcus Smart's still a solid defender. But, yep. And, I mean, listen, Kyrie Irving is not a, known as a fantastic defender. Gordon Hayward's a very good, solid player. And I say, as I say, you still have Smart. And you've got, you know, evolving and, and growing players like Brown and Tatum and even, you know, uh, uh, Rozier. But, I mean, when you think about – uh, the, the the real true grit guys for that team and the guys that, that, that were known as their best defenders, it's Bradley and Crowder, and they're both gone now, and I think it's going to take time. Brad Stevens is a smart guy. They're going to figure it out. And like I say, they're not going to even drop out of the top four, so maybe it's almost a moot argument or point we're making where the last three, four minutes here, they're still going to be a very good team. I just think that too many have automatically anointed them while overlooking not just Toronto, but overlooking Washington, who still got their core together of Wall and and obviously Beal and Gortat and Porter, uh, and the list goes on of their core guys that have been brought back, let alone the emerging Milwaukee Bucks that now have a healthy Jabari Parker coming back into the mix. There's a lot of things to like uh, about the Milwaukee Bucks, too, and I, I just think that, that Boston, simply could, because of that one splash trade or maybe trying to sell the headlines of you know LeBron, uh, and Isaiah Thomas and sending Isaiah Thomas to the to a you know a, a uh, you know a rival in this in in Cleveland et cetera and trying to hype up that rivalry and match it that much more. I just think the Celtics have been you know a little bit too anointed uh, for a team that's been overhauled so much. Well, we started talking about the consistency with the Raptors and we ended with it, so it comes full circle. There we go, <laughs> Eric. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. All right, Phil. Thanks. Best of luck. All right. Take care. Bye. That was Eric Smith. He does the play-by-play for the Toronto Raptors and was at the team training camp in Victoria, B.C. That's all for this episode of Canada's Court. If you'd like to get in touch with the podcast, that'd be great. You can reach out to me on Twitter at Canada's Court or by email at Podcast at gmail.com. And if you really want to do a favor to the show, you can put a review on iTunes and listen what you think. Maybe give us a five-star rating if you're feeling generous, and uh, we'd, we'd really appreciate that. That will do it for today's episode. I'm Philip Drost. Thanks for listening.